0: And that song was a great reflection of, of the need to be thankful. And so good warm up for this week with Thanksgiving coming up. Let's, let's bow together. And in this time, just want to ask you to do this. Tell the Lord three to five th- things that you are thankful for. You can do it silently or you can do it aloud right now. Just give the Lord thanks in your life. Father, today, as we think about just enumerating and counting our blessings, we're aware of the fact that there are hundreds and thousands of blessings all around us, but we so often only see the negative. And so this week and and beginning today, Lord, would you well up in our hearts, help us have spiritual eyes to see all of the many good things that we have to be thankful for Father, we're thankful today for you sending your son, Jesus, to come on a rescue mission into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. Lord, we're thankful for this country in which we live though uh, we are embroiled in many controversies and struggles today for the direction of the country, for the fundamental aspects of, of life and freedom and liberty and what it means to be human, what it means to live a life rightly. I pray that you would help us to restore our sight for righteousness in this country and we're thankful for those who lead and lead us well and lead us strongly. And I pray for all of our leaders today. And Father, we're thankful for this area in which we live, right here in the northern tip of Arkansas, a land full of beauty, full of wildlife and abundance and beautiful trees and the many seasons and good friends and good people. And Lord, we're thankful for this church, the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have brought together into this fellowship. And I pray your many blessings upon us at First Baptist Church, Valley Springs, Arkansas. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We'll open, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter three this morning. Genesis chapter three. And I probably need to go ahead and say, gosh, when we're thinking about Thanksgiving and all of the good things, that uh, I've got some bad news today. But you know, really, it's important that we know the bad news of what is wrong with humanity so that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be set in its proper context. In other words, the light of the gospel is glorious and beautiful precisely because It shines into the darkness. There are so many things wrong in the world and with, honestly, each one of us. I read this week that an estimated 7 million able-bodied young men ages 25 to 40 are not only not working, but they're not seeking a job. And the article went on to say that this is unprecedented in peacetime in America. And you'll know the name Mike Rowe. Um, Micro was quoted in light of that statistic, and he said the reflection is kind of hideous. The reflection is kind of hideous. And so in that article, it's just talking about the fact that we have lost sight of something. And I assume his quote, the reflection of this number, is hideous because I think it reflects the fact that we, there is a lack of teaching and understanding and taking hold of the importance of responsibility. Responsibility. That's not a word that we hear very often, except maybe in a job ad. But it's an important thing. Today, we are going to take a look at Genesis 3, 1 through 6. And here we're going to find that this is nothing new. A failure to take and fulfill God-given Responsibility. For in Genesis chapter 3, we find the first man and woman actually failing in that very regard to fulfill what God had given them to do in that place. So let's read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6 as we begin. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. The first thing we need to do as we come to this passage is point out some key elements in the passage so that we're all on the same page about the problem in our world, the problem in our hearts, the problem in humanity. Chapter 3 opens up. In a somewhat strange way. Here is the introduction of a new character into the story. A clever, a cunning, and a communicating what? Serpent. Serpent. That's not normal. At least not where I live. There's no name given to this character here. This serpent. But he's introduced speaking to the woman as if maybe this was normal. What is said about him? Well, it says that he is crafty or cunning, more so than all of the other beasts or creatures that God had created. There is a craftiness, a cunning, a cleverness about this serpent. Now, it is possible to translate the word that is given for serpent as shiny or brilliant. You know, many snakes or serpents are that way. They've got a a shiny, shimmery appearance. So, don't know, but who is this serpent? Well, we know that he's clever, cunning, he communicates. Well, actually, it's not definitively given to us until the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 12, also it's found in Revelation 20. In Revelation 12, 9, it's talking about Satan, and it calls Satan the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The one who deceives the whole world. So I would say that we can pretty easily define who this is, this serpent. It is Satan, a deceiver, the deceiver, if you will. The great dragon calls him the ancient serpent. So there you go. Who is this serpent? Well, it's Satan somehow. But, you know, I don't think there's any reason to believe that all of the animals of the garden were able to speak. Do you all believe that? I, I don't think this is normal, but here is Eve just communicating as if. Hmm. Now I can tell you, my wife does weird things when ser- serpents show up around the house. I mean, it gets rather exciting. It's not ho hum, but here is this serpent speaking to Eve. Now some believe that Satan um, temporarily inhabited. This creature. Do we ever see that? Do we ever see anywhere else in the Bible a, a spiritual being able to inhabit an animal? Well, actually, yes, you do. You see uh, spirits or demons being cast into swine. So I, that is a possibility. Some believe here what's going on, and the reason Eve was so calm here is that, there, yes, it was the form of a serpent, but it was a familiar form or serpent, possibly a cherub from heaven. A guardian angel, if you will, that had a serpent appearance. Now, some people take umbrage with that idea. But listen, angelic creatures are created by God. They are creatures. They have not always existed. But regardless of how we understand and why it took on this form, the fact is that we are to understand that this is the devil of old, the great dragon, the fallen angel, Satan, a tempter, and a deceiver. What I would say to you is that the Bible presents this pretty straightforward. Along with all of the other creation, then bam, you've got this talking serpent that is trying to deceive. The Bible in Revelation 12 and 20 says that that is indeed what's going on here. And I don't think that we're supposed to understand this as some sort of mythological fable. Some, some kind of uh, kid's fairy tale or bedtime story. That's, that's crafting something to try to make sense of our world, I think the Bible presents this account, Genesis 3, not only here, but in the New Testament, as a historical reality. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, along with the passage that Brandon read at the outset of our service, says this, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So in other words, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection to eternal life comes through a man. Jesus Christ, just like the fallenness of humanity, came through a real man at a real point in time. Namely, a man named Adam. And we're going to look at this in great detail today. And so this is... An historical account, we believe. And we get into the temptation now. Here is this serpent, Satan, who comes and begins the temptation process in a fairly innocuous way. Seemingly almost somewhat subtle or innocent. And here it is. The serpent comes. Now remember, Adam and Eve have been put in this garden that God planted. And he said, of all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat... Except for one. There is one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you may not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof you will surely die. That is what was given to Adam. And then Eve was created. We looked at that. And certainly Adam would have told his beloved bride about that prohibition that God had given. In fact, we see that she knows about it. But here comes the serpent, and rather than coming to Adam, who received the command directly from God, he comes to Eve, he comes to the woman, and asks just a suggestive question. Did God indeed say? Did God actually say to you that you cannot eat of any tree of the garden? So pretty subtle, he doesn't come on with a full-fledged, upfront confrontation, but just a question. But he misspeaks. He insinuates that God has said that they cannot eat of any of the trees. So he begins to get her questioning what she knows, what she's heard, what she is living by. And I think as I talk through and walk through this anatomy of a temptation with you, I do think that we should think about how we likewise are tempted. Sometimes by the subtlest question or headline. Did God actually say? And we should be very careful of what's being asked. He insinuates something that is untrue here to the woman. But Eve corrects him. No, 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 no. God didn't say that. God didn't say that. She corrects. But she also downplays the freedoms that God has given. She says God didn't say that. But she, what she doesn't say is, Man, God has given us all of these trees wherein we can freely eat, except for that one. She says, no, it's not exactly that way. And so you get the sense that she's already beginning to focus on what she can't do, what she cannot have, rather than all of the many blessings that God says you can have. You can partake of these things. Isn't that the human way? You tell someone, don't look over there. I don't, I don't want y'all to think about that person that's sitting next to you. I want you to think about all the other people. What? Your mind does that, right? You go immediately to the thing that you've been told that you cannot have and you cannot do instead of looking at all of the positive things that I could do and that I can't have and that God has given me. It's one of the important things and I think why it's so important that we celebrate Thanksgiving is, again, because we focus on what we don't have. What about just saying, look at all of this stuff that God has given us. All of these many blessings. Rather than the one thing that seems a little out of kilter in my life. Or maybe has not come to fruition yet. So Eve does correct, but she downplays her freedoms and gifts. And then another interesting thing that I notice is that Eve exaggerates the restriction that God has given. Did you notice that? She doesn't just say, well, God says we can't eat from that tree. We can't even touch it. We can't touch. We can't eat, and we can't even touch it or we're going to die. So she now exaggerates. She kind of does what Satan has done. And I don't know. I don't know if Eve's just making this stuff up on the spot, if she's been brewing on this too long, or maybe Adam passed it along that way. You know what, Eve? God has said... That we don't eat of that tree. And I think that the best thing would be that we don't even touch it. Maybe don't even go near it. We don't know, but she exaggerates the restrictions that God has given us, has given them. And so now the door is open. She's questioning, gosh, what about that? That does seem pretty negative. Why isn't God even going to let us touch that tree, much less eat of it? And now the temptation escalates. From a simple question and suggestion to a full-on, flat-out denial of what God has said. And here's what the, Satan, what the serpent does. He denies God's word. He denies what God has said will happen in that day where they eat of that tree, that death would ensue. He says this, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. So don't worry about that. I would say to you that most temptations... Have at least these two pieces. There is a denial of God's word and directives. And there is a downplaying of the consequences. One of the biggest obstacles probably for us to embracing the gospel. And seeing the beauty of the salvation that we have in Christ. Is that we actually have been conditioned to totally downplay what sin is. It's a fruit man. It's just a tree problem is God has fenced it off and we downplay sin and we downplay the consequences in our mind we begin to think that surely God wouldn't be that harsh so I think that those two things often lead us to the point where we're ready to disobey God we deny his word and his directives or and we downplay the severity of disobedience And then finally, verse 5, the serpent, he totally impugns God's motives. Not only are you not going to die, the whole reason God is even doing this in the first place is because he doesn't want you to be as wise as him. He knows that in the day that you eat it, you're actually going to be elevated up to the status and the stature of God. You're going to have this wisdom about you. And so he is impugning God's character and motives, folks, this is the anatomy of the temptation that leads to sin. And we see that here. And so now let's consider the personal failures of Adam and Eve. Who carries the blame for the fall of humanity? Women say, oh, hey, there's a woman who says it's Eve. I asked my wife, I said, should I focus on Adam or Eve today? I won't tell you what she said. Uh, who's to blame? Is it Adam? Is it Eve? Is it the serpent? yes. All of the above carry responsibility here, but let's focus on Adam and Eve and the unique ways that they failed to personally fulfill their God-given roles. Let's start with Eve because that's how the story opens up. It's with this serpent who is tempting Eve. Eve's role was what? To help Adam. To be a co-laborer, we said last week, in the work of stewarding, of living for the glory of God, of keeping the creation Of walking in such a way that God is glorified and obeyed. That's what they were to do. She was to be a partner in that. And all of a sudden, we see her entertaining something quite different. Rather than walking in obedience to God. They were called, folks, listen to this, to walk by faith. You know what faith is? It's believing God with confidence. Believing what he says. Believing who he is. Believing that what he says is true and will come about. That's what faith is. And so... To walk in that garden and see that tree and to steer away from it and to not eat is living a life of faith. Faith produces obedience. And so here now she is contemplating disobedience. Her faith is being tempted. And the reason I say that is because as I'm reading through this, I'm seeing that what is going on with her is not only what she hears, but it's what she sees. She sees that that fruit is desirable. For food, She sees that it could make one wise. She sees with her eyes. She is walking by sight and her senses, not by faith. She is walking by her flesh, not by faith. And we all are in the flesh, folks. We all have fleshly bodies that see and hear and feel and have impulses that compel us a certain way, and we need to check those things. We live in a world that is just totally given over to unbridled sensuality. In other words, whatever you feel or think or want to do, do it. Wrong. Wrong. Even these perfect beings have this flesh and they're tempted to walk by sight rather than by faith. She sees the fruit. I'll tell you what she's overcome with. She's overcome with the lust of the eyes. She's overcome with desire. She desired it. That's what the Bible says. She desired that fruit. She's begun to cast her glance. I'll tell you, one of the biggest problems we get into is we look at something that we shouldn't be seeing, and rather than running from it, what do we do? Well, let me look just a little bit longer. Well, let me contemplate how good that actually could be. And so she's living out the flesh, And the lust of the eyes, she's desiring. Desiring here is the same word for covetousness in the Ten Commandments. She's coveting. She wants now what she is told she cannot have. She wants something. God's given her all of this and him all of this. But she wants this. She covets. She desires. It is this impulse that's overcoming her. And what does she do? She takes it. She eats. And not only does she disobey God by following the impulse of the flesh, as she has been led along in temptation, but now she does what the next step most of us want to do is get someone else in our corner. Let's go ahead and implicate someone else so I'm not alone in this thing. And she gives it to the man. I don't think she diced it up and put it in a fruit pie. She didn't slip him a mickey. You know what I'm saying? She didn't obscure this thing. She just gives it to him. Here you go, buddy. Join me. So she began, begins to be a tempter as well. But Adam is not blameless. Us guys, you know, we want to go. I was telling someone a great country song. Keith Whitley had a song called Lord, I Want My Rib Back. That's what what Adam's singing at this point, right? Lord, I want my rib back. We're in trouble here. Adam is not blameless. It's not all her. It's not all the snake. Actually, most of the time, the Bible assigns the brunt of the responsibility and failure here in the fall to who? Adam. As in, Adam, all die. So in Adam, all will be made alive, the second Adam. Adam is not blameless. Just like Eve, he failed to honor God they to obey God and God's command to him. And I'll tell you the other thing. And again, the reason I mentioned that Adam wasn't just duped. It appears that Adam is sitting right there watching this whole thing go down. Because she takes a bite and it says, and so she hands it to him. He's passive. He is doing nothing. He's watching all of this go down and does absolutely nothing. He stays quiet. He's probably watching a football game, right? He's checked out. No, he's watching it go on. And he's passive. And and the little quote I gave you at the beginning, I think there is, for most of us men, always this temptation towards passivity and just sit back and watch. And this kind of failure is happening happening today. It's been happening. And we're all, not just men, but I think especially men, we're prone to this kind of thing. And so I was thinking about this, man, Hammering on what Eve did wrong and what Adam did wrong. What are we supposed to do? Men, what are we supposed to do? I was thinking about, I was wanting just to, just to focus in on this idea of uh, man's God given roles. But I thought I'd better put it in the bigger context of this passage. But I was reading my Bible this week, and I was reading an obscure passage. Actually, it's 1 Chronicles ch- chapter seven. It's one of these genealogies, and this guy had seven kids, and they had ten thousand among them, and blah blah blah. You know, and you're reading it, and, and this is one of those passages you kind of skim over. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of this obscure passage, I find this great verse, 1 Chronicles 7.40, that for me, it was just, I mean, totally inspiring. I thought it was a great summarization of godly men's roles. It says, all of these were the sons of Asher, heads of families, choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders. 1 Chronicles 7.40, write that down, guys. All of these, these sons of Asher. So there there was this whole family line here among the Israelites that were standouts. They were something different. They were heads of families. They were choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders. Would you indulge me just for a minute as we think about this? We're not too far from being finished, but I want us to get this. Let's think about this, men, because we need a resurgence of the understanding and taking hold of godly manhood. I said last week that our world wants to whitewash and wipe away all gender distinctions. That's a mistake. So we should be asking the question, if you're raising up young boys or teenage young men, what should you be training them up to be and to do? I think that's a great summary. Those four things. To be a a head of a family. To be a choice man, to be a brave warrior, to be an outstanding leader. They were heads of families. They were family men. They had in mind these sons of Asher that eventually they would be the head of a family. That they would have a household, a wife, and children to take care of, to lead, to protect, to give direction to. They were family men. I'll tell you, that idea is flying away very quickly in this day. Men who want a family, what do we want? Men today want freedom, not families. We're holding out this idea that you can do whatever you want. Just stay away from marriage and go sow your wild oats and do whatever. These were family men who took care of their wives and their children. They took care of things at home. They didn't check out at 5 o'clock. They were heads of families. They weren't on autopilot when they came home. Heads of families. They weren't consumed with selfish interests. Outside of the family only. They weren't totally given over to a job out there. They considered their families. Heads of families. Hey guys, if you're married, if you have children, whatever your family situation, if you have a family, you're supposed to be Sorry, ladies. The Bible says you're supposed to be the head of the family. That's a responsibility to grab hold of. It's not a throne to sit on, right? It's a responsibility. It's something God has given you to do. And part of masculinity is, I think it's Doug Wilson. I love this. His, His definition of manhood is the glad assumption of responsibility. They gladly assume and take hold of and do their responsibility. That's manhood. Now, whether God has given you a family or not, if you are a man, that's what God has given you to do. To gladly grab hold of responsibility. And so, these men were heads of families. They took their responsibility to be men of the home seriously. And then it says they're choice men. Choice men, that's an interesting word, barar. Purified, cleansed. They lived upright and holy lives before the Lord. They were choice men. They were set apart unto the Lord. They lived holy lives. They were different. They were family men, but it's not all about, listen folks, listen men, it's not all just about raising your family. It's about serving the Lord. They were choice men. They were holy and purified unto the Lord. They gave their life to be men of God. And then I love this one. They were brave warriors. Brave warriors. Now, I could get all jacked up and jazzed up with this deal, you know. And I don't, wanna, I don't want this just, just, just to be a rah-rah thing for men. But we're in a battle. Adam and Eve were the only two people in this story and on the earth. And they were in a battle. They were facing a spiritual battle because we have a spiritual enemy. And what Adam was not was a brave warrior. He should have been stomping on the head of a snake as soon as his wife was being tempted and he saw that. Brave and a warrior. Sometimes, men, we need to quit being Mr. Rogers and, and start being brave warriors. There is a time to stand up and fight the fight. I'm not talking about shooting people. I'm not, you know, don't, don't get me wrong here. Don't go out and paint your faces like uh, William Wallace or anything after church, Okay. But just realize that there are battles that we face, and we're called into battles, especially spiritual battles. And so these men of Asher, they weren't weak, they weren't beat down, they weren't in hiding. They counted the cost, they risked, and went out into the war. And it's easy to set it out, fellas. It's a lot easier to ride the bench and say, let those guys do it. They were brave warriors and they were outstanding leaders. You know what a leader is? A leader is someone who exerts influence, changes things for the good. A real leader, a good leader, is someone who exerts influence to make a positive difference. And these men, it says, of Asher were outstanding leaders. Hey, guys, would you take hold of that? And help us to hold one another accountable to be men of God who are like men of Asher. Who are family men, heads of family. Who, who, who look after their wives and children and grandchildren well. Who be, hold each other accountable to be choice men, holy men, men of God. To be brave, to be courageous in a day where we need courage. Somebody, some bodies have got to stand up and start calling the madness out here madness. And sometimes to people's faces. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Jesus was full of grace, but they didn't kill Jesus because he was a wuss. They killed Jesus because he went in and confronted what was wrong, confronted sin, and battled against... A lot of it was religious people, wasn't it? But he also battled against the dragon, the serpent... He was a brave warrior. He lost his life fighting the spiritual battle. And he was a leader, certainly. So, man, we just need to take hold of this. Guys, I would encourage you to think about what it means to be a man of God. We're going to close up with our thoughts here on this passage. Considering the predicament of humanity after the fall. And how the gospel remedies the problem. So Brandon kicked us off with, I think, a great New Testament passage that is a wonderful commentary on how we understand Genesis chapter 3 now as Christians. In other words, we're catching a glimpse of the bad news that the good news speaks into. Hey, you know what the bad news, you know what the predicament that came about because of this account is? Death! kicked out of the garden, spiritual death, the connection with God, that intimate walk with God was severed. And not only that, physical death came in to the world. And disease and disorder and all the things that go along with that, that is the human condition. It hadn't changed. This is where it came from. And it's still true today. But Romans 5 teaches us something about that. And how the gospel remedies that. You see, there is the first Adam who failed his God given responsibility along with his wife, and all of their children and posterity have been plunged into a predicament, into a fall, a fallen world, and death. But a second Adam has come as a brave warrior to fight the fight. God did not give up on his creation. He took his responsibility seriously and he came down in the person of Jesus, the second Adam, to bring freedom to those who are in bondage to sin, in bondage to death and condemnation. That's what Romans 5 says. Now I'm not going to reread all of it, but here's a good portion of it. Just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. We are all infected with the disease of Adam, and we all act on it. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if by the one man's trespass many died, how much more have the grace of God and gift which comes through the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? Here's the picture. When you're born in your fleshly body, you are a son, a daughter of Adam. You fall in his line. He is your family head, and you are infected with sin. Not only that, you have willingly acted upon that sin, so you are in Adam. And the predicament is death, judgment, condemnation, no longer at peace with God. But Jesus came, the second Adam, to start a new family. The family of God. And we need to change families. We need a life change. We need to be born again spiritually through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he took our sin on the cross. He died the death that our sin deserves and he was raised to life. He overcame the grave. And promises that all those who join his family will inherit eternal life. How do you move from the family of the first Adam to the second Adam? By faith. You trust Jesus. You repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And you change Here's something interesting that I'd never noticed before as I was preparing for this sermon. I'm just going to throw it in right here because it's super interesting. might seem a little bit uh, uh, tangential, but here it is. The first sin and the fall of humanity. We were plunged into death and condemnation by an act of eating. Here is a serpent. Hey, take and eat. Here is the woman who took a bite. Adam, take and eat. And Jesus brings us back to the table, those who have been born again, who have had their sins forgiven by the blood and the body of Jesus and says, I want you to come to the table and I want you over and over to eat. And actually in the Lord's Supper, you know what he says? Take and eat. This is my body. That was broken for you. Take and eat. Take and drink. This is my blood. Which was shed for the remission. Of your sins. Jesus. For those who are now a member. Of the second Adams household. Are continually invited. To come and eat. We as Baptists love to come and eat. Don't we? It is so good to eat. Of all of God's blessings. But there is a special table. Where we take. And eat from the body and blood in a symbolic way of Jesus Christ, who is now our head. He is the second Adam in whom we have life. Would you bow with me today as we move into a time of response and invitation? You know, maybe you're here today and you've never heard the gospel before, you've never heard this good news before, you've never understood it before. And maybe you still have questions, but let me say this to you. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ, you are still in the same predicament that Adam and Eve were in. Fallen, condemned, separated from God. But God does not want to leave you there. He sent Jesus to die for you, that you might have life that you might be restored and come into the manifold blessings that God always intended for us. If you've never trusted Jesus today, but you feel what we're saying, you feel what this passage says, that you know things are not right in your life, with your body, with humanity, would you just turn to him? Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus. Ask him to bring you in to his family. You can do that right where you sit today. That is the most important thing that you will ever do. Church family, Christians, men, Jesus saves us by faith and calls us into a different life to be a part of a different household to be people who are different, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Would you be willing today to surrender your life, your words, your actions, your everything to him afresh and anew today? Tell him that you're ready to be the man, to be the woman of God that he intends for you. Tell him that you want to be holy and set apart and pleasing in every way. Tell him that you're willing to count the cost, to step into the cultural battles, the spiritual battles that we face, and to be used of God in a great and mighty way. Tell him that you want to serve And be an influencer like Jesus was. To make a difference in this short life. Would you commit yourself to that today? If anybody's here that would like to come up and pray, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to talk with me about your salvation, I'll be here for just a few minutes. This time of invitation as we respond. We may stroll in the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord. Father, today, as that song says, we realize that everything that this world has to offer is an unstable foundation today we renew and restore our commitment to let you build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus, the cornerstone that yes the builders of religion have rejected yes, the people outside of the church look at as nothing worthy of attention but we who have been saved, who have been called and saved according to your purposes recognize Jesus as the only stable so we thank you, God, that you've saved us and set our feet on this solid rock. We pray all of these things together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.